Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. The Penile Rehabilitation Program was created by Melissa at Restorative Sexual Health. This is an online program to assist turning software into hardware without leaving your home. This program was designed for people who live in areas where access to health professionals in this area is not available, or for those who are just too busy to attend consults, or even for those who just feel more comfortable learning at home with online learning and consultations online. For more information about this program, please go to www.rshealth.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health, so prost to you. November 11th. 11 a.m. 60 seconds kids watch on the wall in the pub in the tab in the cars we remember and wonder what should we feel for a it is an absolute delight and pleasure a morning delight to be introducing a very dear friend of mine Rosie Thomas who has recently published her first ever novel or novella now Rosie Thomas is a well-known Australian journalist from TV and radio But in recent years, she's changed her tack to writing after actually building on a column that she did at the West Australian for five years. Rosie is here with us today and we're super excited because this book was only launched two weeks ago. Its title is How to Shame the Devil. And Ros, I'd like you to now just give us a little bit of a brief overview of how you got to start writing this novel. Novella. Novella. Um, I love that word. Good morning. Novella. It's actually a bit French sounding, it's isn't it? So, and, and it's so exotic. Sort of, yes, it's exotic. It sounds like something that Nigel and Dawson would say. Novella. <laughs> a novella. Oh, I'd like to be her. <laughs> uh, a novella is just a short novel, but it's not that short. It's got to be 200 pages, so okay. it's still 42,000 words. Same right. length as The Great Gatsby or uh, much longer than The Old Man and the Sea, Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Um, same length as... Um, of Mice and Men, yep. um, Brave New World, some of the big classics okay. are all 42 to 50,000 words. Um, so the reason this book came about was because I was at the tail end of writing the column for the magazine in the West Australian and at the same time my mum had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and I'm an only child so I was trying to look after her at home Um, with no partner, as in she had no partner. So she was alone and I was an only child. And uh, I was finding the column really difficult after five years because I had kind of 
written everything I'd ever kind of tried to write about and I was really pushing out trying to find new columns every week and it was a relentless column that was 52 weeks a year so 52,000 words 52,000 words a year and Mm. there was no break so it didn't matter if your kids were sick or you know you were sick or you know think bad things happen or good things happen there was no time off and it did take me a good five days of the week to write it anyway and so all of a sudden I find myself um having to give up the column because my mum was so unwell and then having to put her into a nursing home which was catastrophic um, she tried to commit suicide five days after I moved her. Oh, that was so, just so not only did I have the yeah. absolute guilt of making the decision that it, she had to go into care, but also absolute guilt at discovering that she had, once she realised mm. what I was doing, she went, right, that's it, I'm out. And she did a very good job of trying to end her life, but she didn't do quite as good a job as she needed to. So we were in hospital for a month. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very traumatic and I was, I, I think I was probably at my lowest point ever. I'd, I'd lost the column. I'd lost my readers, my 350,000 readers that I'd spent five years. 350,000 readers per week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I lost that. Um, and so I was not only grieving for my creative self, grieving for mum, um, grieving for you know, that period, that position in life where you, it no lo- and three kids no longer matters what I was doing. It was all about who I was looking after. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was sitting in the nursing home for weeks on end every morning and just kind of absorbing the sort of depressive um, elements of my life. And then the longer I sat in the nursing home, the more I got to know the residents and the staff and the sort of the, inst- the theatre of institutions institutionalised life, um, which is every bit as rebellious as life Mm. on the outside. (laughs) So, you know, it didn't matter why the residents were in there, whether they had, um, you know, issues with mental health or issues with physical health. They were all desperately trying to keep pushing the trajectory of their lives forward. No one had given up. No one was waiting to die. Everyone was there you know, core personality, even even those with Alzheimer's and dementia, they, they were still the essence of themselves, just shrinking. Um, the staff were beautiful. They touched them all the time. And I, I, I really got the message that human beings need to be touched mm. and that they, if they're not touched, they just can't function and they're miserable. And so the staff were always holding mum's hand mm. and hugging her and kissing her. And she would respond so because she's very um, feisty and, <laughs> and affectionate and fun. Yeah. Jo knows her well. I do. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I got to talking with a lot of, especially the older men, um, because they weren't they didn't have dementia at the rate as the women, so they were often in bodies that weren't working um, with minds that were beautiful and sharp. And um, one of them sat me out in the garden one day and said, I know you're a journalist and I know you want to keep being one, but it's not too late to start again. You can be something else. You can wow. you can oh. be you can be whatever you want to be. It's never too late to start again. So mm. what would you like to do now? And I said, Oh, I want to write a novel. And he said, well, it's not too late. Mm. So, um, I didn't know you'd had that conversation. I know with a resident. It's really weird. I wrote it. I wrote everything he said down on an incontinence pad 
Excellent. <laughs> do you know, do you know, Rosie, I wear a ring that says on it, it's never too late to be what you might have been and I've worn that ring for about 15 years. Oh, wow. Mm. So well, I started taking notes for How to Shame the Devil um, at that point and then I basically used the residence and the, you know, the theatre of what was happening in there and, and the staff and I just drew new characters and away I went. And three years later... I found a publisher who was in love with the story as much as I was and 18 months after that, so now four years later, it's a book. It's did on you the shelf. Did you start writing that book in the nursing home when yep. you were with your mum? Yeah. Wow. Yep. That's so great. Yep. And, and I love the, the dedication of the book. It says, To Ma, who taught me it always seems impossible until it's done. Yeah, that's very much my mum. My mum, the three key components of my mum are optimism, persistence and fun, loyalty, fun, you know, affection, sort of some sort of, you know, joyousness. Yeah. And those, yeah, those were the reasons that I wrote the book because I wanted people to understand that no one had ever really set a novel in a nursing home. Mm. No one really knows what goes on in a nursing home until you have someone you love in there. Mm-hmm. And I just really desperately wanted to give a voice to the people whose dignity still mattered so much to them, including my mother. Um, And, you know, those residents are resolutely carrying the spirit of childhood into old age and they just aren't finished. And everyone thinks you go into a nursing home, it's all over. Well, it's just so not over. Do you know what I think is really interesting? Um, I used to work in aged care many years ago and the company I worked for did this great thing where they got the families to create a memory book of what the person had done through their life and put it in the room. And I thought it was so good because it's so easy to forget when you're working in places like that, that people are not old people that are useless. They've had these vibrant, amazing lives, but because their body's kind of given up the ghost on them, you forget that. And it was such a valuable thing because I think as the nurses would go into the room and see that about them go, this person had all these children and these grandchildren and did all these amazing things and it's really important to remember that. That's really interesting you say that because one of the other reasons I wrote the book is because the people in the nursing home where my mother were, was, is, I should say, they are all masters of the universe. So the gentleman who told me it's never too late to start over was a cardiac surgeon who implanted Mm. the first pacemaker in Australia. Wow. There was a female pilot in there from the 1940s. There was a mother of 10. There were judges. There were lawyers. There were plumbers. There were carpenters. There were people who once ruled the world. And that you're actually right about what you say is when in particular men, but obviously all of us, when you lose your purpose in life, when you stop your work, people see you as kind of invisible invisible, and we are all what we do and these people were desperately trying to hang on to their intelligence and their education identity and who they and were. Their identities, especially the men, especially and, the men. And do you know, it's so interesting when I interview men and most of my patients say are in their 60s and 70s and maybe older going through prostate cancer and they, I always want to know about them so I get an idea of who they were and what they do and how they're going to think. And I often say, and, you know, what do you do? And they say, I'm retired. And then it's a full stop. So I say, but what did you do? And what was your career pathway? Because that just says to me, he's an engineer or he's a plumber or he's a funeral, (laughs) you know, director. And I get so much knowledge from that. And also the handshake of the strength of the handshake when I walk in. But what is so unique is that this is the first novel set. In a nursing home. In a nursing home. 
you also have just won an international prize. Can you tell us about that? Oh, well, that was just a complete stroke of luck. I entered – obviously writers enter prizes um, because you have to because you don't earn anything. So any prize money that comes your way is very exciting. <laughs> um, and I had entered um, what's called the International Staunch Book Prize. It's a UK prize open to writers from all over the world. Um, and it's there's a short story prize and a flash fiction prize. And flash fiction is story told in under 1,500 words, sometimes – the parameters are under a thousand. Um, and I'd entered this story that I had worked on for months and months and months, which I actually think is outside of the book, possibly the, certainly for me, the best thing I've written. Mm. Um, and so I submitted this flash fiction piece. Um, the Staunch Prize is a prize that was started in 2018 and it was started by a um, screenwriter who was sick of seeing thrillers in Hollywood always using violence against women to tell the story or no. always involving the murder or assault of a woman, which is right. the trope for a thriller yeah. is often yeah. the female is the victim. So she started this prize um, for thrillers that did not <laughs> include violence against Didn't women. women. And right. there was it was quite controversial in 2018 because um, a lot of the movie industry in Hollywood said we can't tell thrillers unless we kill women or, or rape them or and she said well you you need to because it's you shouldn't be relying on a trope like that mm. um so the staunch book prize is the prize for a thriller that does not involve violence against women and so I wrote this story that was shortlisted in August and then in September um they asked me to record myself reading it um on zoom with camera and then I didn't hear anything else. And the day after my book launched, they rang from London a minute after I'd just done a radio interview and there was a London number ringing and they rang and said, you've won it. I couldn't believe it. So the shortlist was Connecticut, Wales, London and Perth. And what it's done is it's put us, it's put Perth and Australia on the map, on the literary map for being, um, you know, really good writers of flash fiction. That's fantastic. So it was very exciting. It was very exciting and it all happened at once. So it was great um, publicity for the book, of course. And it just so happened that my publisher, Night Parrot Press, is the only publisher in Australia to publish a flash fiction. So it was the most serendipitous (laughs) award for their new author to win a flash fiction prize when they're the flash fiction publishers (laughs) in Australia. That's fantastic. So we're all a bit excited about that. So I'm just thinking that some of our listeners are going to be going, now, what has this got to do with men's stuff? So tell us the... Oh, lots. Yes, yeah, lots. So tell us the, like, the basic, you know, so storyline. The premise yeah. of the story is that the lead character, the protagonist, his name is Arthur Lambkin. He's 78. He has Parkinson's. He's put himself in a nursing home to save his daughters from having to, you know, from, from the trauma of having to look after him. And... When he's in, so he's a new resident in the nursing home trying to adjust to life from being an independent man. And a woman from his past, 30 years before, writes into the local newspaper and accuses him of being the office Mm. predator from his office in the 1980s. So, and and what year this book set now? So, the book set in 2019. Right. And the woman writes to say, I once worked with Arthur Lambkin in the 1980s and he assaulted me at a Christmas party and I don't, I, I, you know, because of the Me Too movement, I would like to out him as a predator, an office predator. God, it's so topical. So his brilliant. world at the age of 78 explodes and he becomes a national disgrace and a national mm. uh, shame. But the question for me was 
whose version of an event is right? Mm. Whose version of a memory is right? Can we judge the behaviour of the 1980s, say, in which sexual harassment was, if not accepted, was at least tolerated, can we judge the behaviour of the 1980s of women and men by 2021 standards? Mm. Is that fair to do that? Because in 1989, a Christmas party was full of drugs and drink and, you know, women and men having lots of fun and things, lots of stuff happened. Yes. Um, And today that stuff is not allowed to happen. No. And is frowned upon and is illegal. There was no such thing as sexual harassment laws when I was in radio in the 1980s and Arthur Lambkin works in radio. So I drew on my experience as a 21-year-old cadet in radio who, you know, found it quite um, hard to navigate the sexual politics of an industry where men were in power and women weren't. So, you know, it's a slightly autobiographical in terms of how the world worked in those days, but I definitely, I definitely wanted to, I definitely wanted to work out what happens to a man who doesn't understand what consent means. What happens, what happens when men? I'm not sure how they're behaving, whether they're behaving appropriately or not appropriately. Um, what happens when a woman, um, you know, leads a man on and then decides at the last minute that she doesn't want what's going to happen and and he might misread her signals so part of the novel is about whether consent can be verbalized uh, whether consent has to be verbalized or whether a woman's um gestures can constitute a lack of consent Mm. so in actual fact the quote that's been pulled for the back of the book is her silence did not mean yes Yes. So okay. what I was happens? About to read that out. Uh, what yeah, happens yeah. if a woman does not verbalise her no in a sexual encounter? Does that mean she consents if she doesn't say no? And the argument is fierce about that. And I, I have not drawn any conclusions, but everyone that's writing to me who's read the book already is um, there's a big range of um, responses, and they tend to go along gender lines. So the men say he made a mistake but she didn't make it easy and she was very vague mm. about what she wanted and the women say he raped her. Yeah. yeah. So you get you get everything from, you know, A to Z but it's really interesting that the gender lines, the, the response tends to fall in gender lines. What men think is a misunderstanding, women then I immediately just, say, no, 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 he assaulted her. I feel like it's so hard for men in this day and age um, and I'm sure it was hard hard for women before but it almost feels like we've gone the whole me too movement has taken us way to the other the pendulum extreme swung too far. and now you had an interesting thing you said just before we started the interview about how that was really the purpose of this book yeah the purpose of the book um and i i started writing this book the year before me too broke so oh, harvey yeah. weinstein wasn't a thing right. when i started writing the book and then as i wrote the book a year into the first draft harvey weinstein happened mm-hmm. and then the following year christian porter happened uh-huh. and then the yeah. following year britney higgins happened so i was writing this book thinking oh my god i've got to get this book out because yeah. mm. consent is becoming yeah. an explosive issue mm. um but when i started i thought i i really wanted i was feeling from men um, that I was working with, especially in corporate, in the corporate world, they didn't know how to treat a woman in the office anymore. Was it where, so I I have, you know, contacts and colleagues who are on boards and they don't even know if they're allowed to hold a door open for a woman anymore. They don't know whether they can pat a woman on the shoulder and say, you did a great job on such Mm. and such. Um, They don't know if, if they can open a car door for a woman or if they can, you know, shake a woman's hand or give her a kiss or 
They yeah. just don't know where they stand Even. and they're so terrified of putting a foot wrong because this is exactly what happens. You yeah. give a woman a kiss and say congratulations on your PhD and 30 years later she comes back and says you were sexually assaulted me. Mm. So a lot of them are really worried and I thought this is a good time to try and draw this debate back to centre. I'm not excusing those one in 100 men who are predatory or who do groom women, but for the 99 out of 100 who are lovely, decent, gorgeous men and they're the vast majority of men I've worked with, I didn't think it was fair that they masculinity was becoming a national shame and that every man was being painted as a predator because it's not true. Yes, there's always one, but there's also a woman who gives women a bad name. Yeah. So I just wanted to draw, I wanted to bring that debate back to centre and... I know that when the you know the, the the feminist literary end of 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 um, reviewers may have a real issue with me writing what they'll say is the voice of a predatory male. I don't think he is a predatory male. I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to his downfall. Not least that we now judge behaviour from a long time ago, decades ago, by these current moral 2021 standards mm. and I don't think it's fair. On, on a completely personal note, my own two sons who are 16 and 20 have talked to me many times about how difficult it is to be a white Caucasian yep. young male and they have the no idea how to even approach dating. Mm-hmm. Melissa and I have talked about actually mm. doing a podcast on how young men mm. know how to pitch all this because it's not just in the corporate world, it's 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 fifty percent of the population potentially struggling with what their identity is, how they're meant to project themselves. And going back one step further, I always say the reason I'm a men's health physiotherapist is because my mum was so anti male. In fact she was a the bra burning, you know, feisty, don't need a man in my life sort of uh, she went on to be a social worker but she had her own personal reason (laughs) she was way way Mm. too much Mm. the other way and even over the years my dad would often say he went for a you know a promotion he was one of you know five men that had lots of experiences and the, the only female that went for it actually got the job even though she didn't have the qualification so then I just saw creeping in this again reverse Oh, sexual politics is such a grey area but we've tried to make it black and white mm. and I don't think it's a black and white issue. I think there's an enormous amount of grey in the middle. Yes, there's an occasional black issue and there's yep. an occasional white issue yep. but in the middle is all this misunderstanding yep. between the sexes about sex and promotions and behaviour and, you know, moral codes in the office and how to behave in the office and there's a and, lot of grey area. And this is why we wanted to talk to you because we we actually try and represent the voice of the men. Mm. And it's highly unusual. I mean, you've just won well, that's the book. what I've written a you've book just about the, the, the voice of a man. The, the book prize for exactly that mm. as mm. well. So, um, without telling us too much more about the book in I won't detail, give you any spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> but could well, you I haven't read it bit? yet. Joe has, but mm-hmm. I haven't. I, I actually drip fed myself this book because <laughs> Rosie has just a gift with words. Rosie um, has a father that was a very, very. Um, High-profile Australian political reporter, journalist, writing for the Bulletin—is that correct? The Bulletin, the Age. Yeah. So when I've read Rosie's father's actually writings, BRW, I should correct BRW. myself there. BRW, <laughs> okay. the Age now so, writes for Quadrant, still writing prolifically at eighty. But mm. yes. So Rosie didn't actually grow up with her father, but it's just absolutely incredible that this 
has come through like a primitive primal response or, or intelligence. So Rosie's ability to convey words is incredible like no other. My mum actually said when I gave her this book to read just two weeks ago, she actually said, Joe, how does she know how older people feel? <laughs> she goes, she got it so right. She speaks for me in a way I could never speak for myself. Do you know what I think so sad about this is, you know, your character in that book – he was so ashamed of what he did, but at the time it probably never even occurred occur to, to him. And I think him. we see he that. He was very confused as to why the encounter kind of went wrong. Yeah, went wrong. And then he was completely in love and in lust with this woman, and she was, he thought, completely in love and in lust with Received. her. Yeah. And something went wrong in the middle of their encounter, which was fueled with alcohol and fueled mm. with a party. And he just never really worked out what went wrong and I was just looking there for an email my dad sent me this morning he's only just received his copy of the book and he's only halfway through but he sent me an email this morning saying good god you've written the voice of an elderly <gasps> man you've inside my head how did you oh, do that goosebumps for me right yeah now. and there's a scene in the novel that revolves around Arthur Lambkin the protagonist's honeymoon where there's an enormous misunderstanding which blows his honeymoon to bits and it was based on a story that my dad had told me about he and oh. my mum on their honeymoon oh really <laughs> which was possibly a bit um <laughs> tricky um but he's and I was really worried about him reading this particular section because yeah, I, I don't a bit now yeah yes yeah, so I, I didn't meet my father until I was 37 um so we have a sort of a strange father-daughter relationship and he said you absolutely nailed the honeymoon scene you brought back the memory of it so vividly mm. and he said um I don't know whether I'm allowed to say this but he said your mother was a virgin when we got married we went on our honeymoon and then she got cystitis uh -huh. and every time we had sex she got cystitis yep. and our sex life was a disaster because she equated sex with, with pain. injury and pain uh, and he yep. said if you know if nothing else can you please tell the boys I have two sons as well yep. for goodness sake um go and buy lubricant because yep. you can't do that and and he said you know I wasn't clearly scrubbing everything you know yep. quite no. <laughs> well enough and have a you know, pee and having a shower yeah and he said you know what I know now I, I probably could have saved part of my maybe not the marriage but at least the sex you know in their marriage which sort of went horribly wrong mm -hmm. and he said you're, you're very lucky you're here because it was a bit of a disaster mm -hmm. so uh, you know I was quite fascinated that he still held that, that almost trauma well yeah and yep. sort of that grief for yep. what he didn't know as a young yeah. man yeah mm -hmm. and he said you know we were so you know women did not have sex before marriage in the 60s. Yeah, no a good, one knew. A good, good girl. A nice girl. No. <laughs> so when you're you know, married. <laughs> these these blokes, you know, all these blokes, you know, with these fantastic um, libidos, all, you know, once they, you know, once a woman agreed to have sex with them, they were away. Yeah. And, you know, you had these awful, you know, we're, I mean, we're so much more educated now. But I've got a 14-year-old son and a 21-year-old son. And like Joe said, you know, it's the most awkward conversation you're ever going to have. But I think I'm going to have to say... You're just going to have to really check the body language of a yep. girl when you're with them because if they are drunk or if they are, you know, you, you really are going to have to get consent, a verbal consent yeah. because yep. body language does not necessarily mean yes, yes. or no. There's um, also other complications really around the, that. Do you know, kids. I remember when I was working in an emergency department many years ago, a young girl came in that had been to a party underage and she'd had sex with a guy and... She was in trouble because she didn't get home. She'd snuck out and her mm. parents brought her in. So she said that she was 
had sex against her will, you know, and the young man to make up who, for being late. Yeah, and the young man oh. who'd had sex with her. You had to report it. Um, was eighteen. She oh. was fifteen. She looked a lot older. So he ended up actually with his name on a pedophile list. Oh, and that's terrible, isn't it? It's you know. It's Are like boys who share dick pics mm. and if you share another person's or, or, a, or a girl that's naked, you're then, you know, transmitting child pornography. Exactly. I mean, these poor kids. It's so hard. <laughs> and, you know, this young man, it was really awful because, you know, he had no idea she was 15 and not 16. She probably she, said she was 17. She did. She had consented at the time. So she ended up, when she realised how much trouble he was going to get in, withdraw the charge of, of, to, of rape. He's ruined. But he was still charged as a pedophile um, because the police could do that. And that was never dropped and he had to live with that. You know, a few so years tragic. ago, many years ago at our primary school, I actually organised a conflict resolution um, presentation through Relationships Australia. The one thing I remember is that communication is only 7% words, 55% mm. is tone and 38% gesture is non-verbal observation, body mm. language. Mm. So when we talk about even communication via text, yeah, you we've don't got get it. 7% mm. of the message only. We don't get the tone in the, the, the um, non-verbal. So when we talk about consent, it's got to be that 7%. In words is what, what we're kind of getting to. Like in this day and age, we have to redefine things. The other interesting thing that I wanted to write about because the, obviously the, the scene in which the, the, their sexual encounter happens is the pivotal scene in the mm. book and I'm not spoiling it just no. to tell no. you about that. I'm not going to tell you what the consequences are. But the really interesting thing for me was, you know, I did a lot of research around consent and the really interesting thing about it was, you know, just because you get the flip side of the consent issue is even if you do give consent, making the sex legal doesn't necessarily make it fun or good. Yeah, you can still yeah. have a really bad sexual encounter that you've consented to. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So there was the flip side too of, you know, we've all had bad sex. Well, not, yeah. no one's had bad sex with me, of course. But <laughs> But, but you know, we we we're really um, we're gonna you call you pork star, yeah, pork star, <laughs> yeah. her P name. Yeah. But yeah. everyone's had bad sex, and yes. it's not necessarily been illegal sex. It's been consensual. It could just be legal. no lubricant. Well, it just could be a yeah. disaster. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. never know how sex is going to go. It's like driving a car. You never know if you're going to have an accident. True. No. True. So that was another issue for me. Is is and how do men feel when it all goes pear shaped? Yeah. yeah. I know how a woman feels, mm. but ha what happens to a man who's not only? I mean, the protagonist in this book, one of his you know awful insecurities is that he's been he's had a lot of rejection in his life through his childhood. So here comes another woman who rejects him, and how does mm. he react? And you know what happens as a result? He becomes very promiscuous as a result of you know this encounter that goes awry. And his life sort of starts to spiral out of control. And it's all because, you know, one misunderstanding between, you know, two people who each thought that they mm. were as committed to the, you know, the lustful encounter as, as they thought each other was. And, and it just exploded in their faces. Uh, can I just – I was reading the last 20 pages of the book yesterday and I was giggling out loud and my daughter was lying next to me <laughs> reading her book and she was like, Mum, what are you laughing at? And I said, Rosie is so naughty. There was nothing funny in the end of the book, was no, there? No, no, no. It was maybe 30 pages <laughs> in. But it was when there was this scene in the book 
and this is a little bit about the nursing home sort of oh, theatre. Yes, yes. When um, a lovely lady <laughs> strolls in to visit her husband, who's a resident, only to find <laughs> another, another resident straddling her, her husband. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, to lighten the mood a little, this this kind of thing I've heard about, like it there's happens. even body it body pillows, happens. so people. Oh my god, my mum. I mean, my mum's pretty fun anyway, and yep. and you know she's real flirty and yep. she loves men and she's always touching their faces and yep. and admiring their bodies and saying what great legs. I mean, she's a, she's a total <laughs> card even now. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of people that end up in nursing homes um, because they have the beginnings of dementia, dementia. and Alzheimer's can often get a bit make sexually them disinhibited. Yes. yes. And so they go back to being teenagers and they're rampant and <laughs> yep. and randy and you know. And it's nothing. I mean, it's not unusual no. for residents to have a fantastic fling in the nursing home. Of which my mum has had two boyfriends <laughs> in the nursing home, and both of them have. Um, yes, it's been it's been very interesting to manage as a daughter because oh the nursing home was ringing me and saying, uh, oh. "Your mother has developed a relationship with mm. such and such. Would you like an open door or closed door policy?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Closed door." Um, she can go for her life. Yeah. But a lot of the families say no way. Yeah. It's an open door policy. My mother. So that means the door stays open the whole time. The whole time, which means you can't have any private cuddling or. Mm. And in actual fact, I think the vast majority of the sexual activity that happens in the nursing home is just a desperation for touch. Mm. So it's cuddling and kissing Uh. and bodies together and spooning and all the things that we in the, you know, anybody less than you know, nursing home mm. um, aged care is getting Takes from their granted. friends and their children yeah. and their husbands. And so, you know, I don't actually think a lot of it is about sex. I don't know what the performance levels would be of the residents <laughs> anyway. But well, I maybe think Melissa about, could help with that. I think it's about <laughs> skin-to-skin contact, skin, like yeah. mother-to-baby yeah. and child-to-child yeah. child and mother-to-child and father-to-child. Mother human connection, child. that validation of being alive. I mean... And I wish that everyone had the privacy that all the families said... They can do whatever they like in there. If they want to jump into bed with another resident and, and nobody's I think getting question, hurt, you can go for your life. Yeah, I agree. I, I think when I worked in nursing homes when I was at university, I found that there was that whole being promiscuous and, and sexually charged is quite common you're with dementia. You're not going to get dementia. pregnant, you? No, you're not going to get pregnant. <laughs> I think the issue that the families often have, though, is that if they perceive that their loved one is more demented or, men, you know... Being not, taken advantage Being taken advantage Consent of. Consent again. Yeah. What's that? Yep. And I also think it's very hard for the ch- the families of somebody who's older to admit that that person is still a, a sexual, sexual being. Yes, very, yeah. Especially if they have a spouse living outside. Oh, that's a bit tricky. Yeah. I mean, that that, that situation did happen and the, the uproar, you know, the, the situation. In yeah. the nursing home. Yeah, which was a very funny scene because the wife arrives to visit the husband and yeah. finds yeah. another resident um, riding in yeah. like a wild yeah. worst cowgirl. <laughs> yeah. But um, the uproar lasted four days. Yeah. Days. So that was a real scenario. Yeah, that was a real scenario. Okay. Yeah. Redrawn. um, Yeah. But that that actually, I mean, I don't think it's unusual. No. No, That that happened and there was uproar and Mm. I mean uproar. Yeah. And everyone was talking about it. And there's this fantastic exchange between, in the book, between Enzo, the chef, and Arthur Lamkin, the protagonist, who have all heard about what's happened. <laughs> and they're all desperately hoping she'll come to visit them. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, oh, there's just something else I've got to talk about. And that is the letters. Can you just tell us a little bit about how the letters all weave into this? Because this is a lot developed from your readership and the men that you 
LinkedIn and emailed with, just as a final kind of expression of how we're weaving this all together, you have also had the opportunity to write a few letters um, with a few funny names at the the said paper. (laughs) So when I was um, writing the column, I'd get a lot of mail each week and um, there was a lovely sort of collection of older, in particular men in their 80s, 70s and 80s, who'd write to me and then I discovered as we corresponded that they were also writing um, letters to the letters page of the West Australian and that was kind of their their way of remaining relevant in the outside mm. world. So if they got their letter published, they were cock-a-hoop and if they didn't, <laughs> they were furious. So I decided that Arthur Lambkin would do the same thing and that he would write letters from the nursing home um, because that was his way of staying yeah. connected to the outside world. But when he didn't get published, he then decided that he'd take on these pseudonyms and start writing under pseudonyms <laughs> because the editor didn't like some of his letters. And so I started inventing these pseudonyms for the character and then I, as I was writing, I was like, I might try a few of these in the paper. So I started writing under the pseudonyms that my protagonist was using as my pseudonym to the West Australian. <laughs> oh, God, I'm lost. And then <laughs> as the book came closer to publication, I ramped it up a bit. So I was competing with a bunch of my mm-hmm. older, lovely old fellows that I talk to every day and we were competing to see who could get the most letters in the paper and right. could you get a pseudonym replying to another pseudonym <laughs> and could I control, you know, my pseudonym talking to someone else's pseudonym. Jesus. So and then we got a bit carried away in the lead up to the book and I was writing under Claire Taurus and <laughs> Lou Brickant and <laughs> Emma Royd and Emma Royd she was South African excellent and Will Mahandu <laughs> which they all got published so we were in the morning oh sitting at our you know we're all sitting at our respective cafes around Perth texting and ringing each other going oh my god Will Mahandu got in the paper above Lou tomorrow I'm going to start I'm going to try writing under Will my finger do <laughs> and, and we had like 15, I think we had a run of about two weeks where there was constantly lubricant replying to, we had another one called Don Kedich, who if you spell it different, if you read it out loud, it's Donkey Dick. And then there was Don Keebles, but if you read it in a different way, it was Donkey, donkey balls. balls. So we'd have Donkey Dick replying to Donkey Balls, <laughs> lubricant replying to Claire Taurus. It was hysterical oh and my then God. 6PR Radio got wind that there was something funny happening on the pages of the letters page and they spent three weeks trying to identify... On the rumour file. On the rumour file, <laughs> trying to identify who this imposter was that was <laughs> writing these hilarious letters under all these terribly juvenile rude... So in the end I got outed and I did <laughs> I did an interview with 6PR a couple of weeks ago where it was hilarious, <laughs> which you can still listen to. You can look up my name. We can actually, we can actually add into our show mm. notes, yep. And that's when the West um, got wind of the fact that this was happening and um, it's been a bit of a war ever since because (laughs) the editor of the newspaper was not very amused that his letters page had been hijacked by his (laughs) former columnist who had got herself a bit out of control and was Was enjoying it way too much. She was getting published and ended up with, you know, Jenny Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Eileen Ulick. She got in as well. That's hilarious. (laughs) We've got a a patient who writes a a blog for me called Test Eichel. Oh, Test Tickle. I was going to give her a go. (laughs) (laughs) So then I've had to change all my pseudonyms. Now I'm writing body parts like Tony Hip and um, Elbow. And (laughs) And I got one the other day. I got one the other day. I'm I'm HR. Why am I HR? HR because 
because two Fridays ago after a book launch, Joe took me out for a celebratory drink. She was sober yeah. and I had a couple of gins and then she dropped me home and she'd pulled up on the verge. And I was wearing my orange boots. Oh, she was wearing some orange go-go boots, which we were all laughing about and she was saying, oh, my feet hurt. I said, take your boots off. So she took her boot off but as she did it, she got her foot stuck on the accelerator. <laughs> oh. I was standing saying goodbye with the car door around me. And she got a, stu- a foot stuck oh, on the accelerator and the car was in reverse and she took me out. Oh. She said one minute she was laughing and the next minute I was gone. <laughs> so I have now nicknamed her Hit and Run. Oh, well, that's it. We're not <laughs> and um, I had a little bit half. of sore shoulder. So we've got half from now <laughs> but on. But fortunately I'm a physio who still does a bit of. So did you actually fix this? Um. No, she didn't need to but we were laughing because it was pretty much the book had launched like two days before and I said, <laughs> I that is fantastic. It. If you'd killed me, the headline in the paper, what would that be? Oh. Uh, debut novelist gets thriller ending. <laughs> <laughs> so we were writing our headlines. And speaking of thriller funny. ending, my mum said to me, oh, at the end of the novel, this is why I didn't want to quite get there. Um, I didn't want to, you know, when spoilers. a book. Don't no, I'm not doing spoilers. But when, when you read a book, it's so good, you don't want to. To end. You don't to want end, it to end. And that. You know, that's for me. I the, only ended the sign it of a great book is I'm like, oh no, I'm I don't want it to be over. No. So, so are you going to write a sequel to this one? No, there's no sequel to this one, but I have started writing a new novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I'm not a long way in. I haven't done much lately. I'm five thousand words in, so it's well and truly moving. Right. And it's um, I can tell you a little bit, but it's the story of a Jewish mobile van ice cream man, so a Jewish Mr. Whippy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Where on earth did you get that subject matter from? Well, I discovered when mum went into a nursing home that I um, that I was actually three-eighths Jewish and that oh. a huge branch of our family was Orthodox Jewish wow. from Guernsey um, and that my grandfather was the only one of ten siblings to marry a Gentile. So it died out in oh. our line but all the others oh. are Orthodox Jews. So I got really wow. excited about having sex through a hole in the sheet. And, <laughs> um, and then and then I decided I, well, I think that's write. only virgins. What? I think it's only virgins. Oh, really? Yeah, sorry. Oh, damn. <laughs> All right. Well, that's not going to happen. Oh, that's mm. a different ending to what so you So I'm thought. writing about a Jewish Mr. Whippy who's forced to train his artificial intelligent replacement. And so it's a novel that centers on in particular what we've been talking about, the purpose of work in the yep. male oh. okay. psyche. And if we use androids to replace customer service people or plumbers, carpenters, taxi drivers, the sort of the the more um, manual labour end of the spectrum. If we start to replace those people with artificial intelligence, machines, driverless cars, et cetera, et cetera, what happens to that whole layer of society who Mm. identify their, who have their identities connected to their work, plumbers Mm. and carpenters and Mm. taxi drivers and Mr. Whippies. Yeah. so the conflict um, is particular, uh, particularly. So he's forced to train his own replacement. So he's he's basically being forced by a giant conglomerate to train his replacement, who's um, a computer, who's a who's a robot, a android. Right. Um, and so um, it's very interesting in customer service when you really oh. do the research in that if you sell ice cream and you're a Mr. Whippy person. You know, it, it's not about the ice cream and it's not about the sales. It's about how you interact with your yeah. customers. And it's the nuts. About, the nuts or not. It's about on solving ta- ta- toddler tantrums yeah. and yeah. helping parents sort out, you know, kids. Strawberry. And, uh, uh, yeah. And, flake, it's, and it's about um, it's about grandparents with children. Yeah. It's about the relationships. relationships. And mm. how do you teach an Android customer service? You can't. can't. So we cannot replace ourselves in every dynamic mm. with 
artificial intelligence and it is happening at a rate of knots because in 15 years' time. So this novel is set 10 years in the future at a time when we do have driverless cars and there are no such thing as truck drivers and taxi drivers and courier drivers wow. anymore and mm. they've all lost their jobs and now have no their purpose. Yeah. So they're at home, not, not they have no purpose, no identity, um, a lot of resentment um, and what happens to men in particular, like Lester Zelensky, mm. the Jew- Jewish Mr. Whippy, what happens when you take away their purpose? Mm. And so that, that is something that in my every single mm. consultation with men I'm talking about. So if this is I'm the consent novel, yep. the next one will be the purpose a novel, novel about the future of work. Okay. Well, one final question from me. What inspired you to write on behalf of men? Uh, that's a really good question and I don't know, but I think because I grew up as an only child with no father, no brothers, no uncles, no men in my life, I've always been quite fascinated or I've always and I've always not understood men but been quite fascinated by them and so I always gravitate towards male characters and I mm. think this is my way of trying to get back what I missed out on. I look at my daughter with her father mm-hmm. and she is so in love with him mm. at the age of, even at that turning 12, she's yep. absolutely besotted with him. Mm-hmm. I'd say the same with my daughter. Yep. And I didn't get that and I, I am so pleased that she has that relationship with her father but I had to kind of make it up as I went along. Mm. I didn't have any grandfathers, no brothers, no uncles, no, wow. not a single. I had my grandmother, my mother and me. My mother was a single mother. We lived in my grandmother's house because we couldn't afford our own house. Mm. And so I was surrounded by women. women. So, and I think I wrote, I think I've written this book to understand men. And the really interesting thing about this book is that not only have I had advanced readers who are 78 who've told me, that I've written the inside of their heads at mm. 78. And your dad. Mm. But also I had a neuropsychiatrist consult on the novel for the Parkinson's yeah. aspect. Great. And he came back, you know, when we finally finished editing and said, I think you have nailed the Parkinson's experience in an elderly man. So, and then I've obviously researched the consent angle through lawyers and, mm. and my own experiences. So I'm hoping I've given voice to men who are struggling with... Mm how they're supposed to relate to women. And do you feel like you understand men better now? I think I've given men a bit of a voice from a female perspective. Oh, that doesn't make sense. No, but we do the same here. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're I'm trying hoping to I've given men, I'm hoping I've given old men their dignity back and their identities and, uh, and, and, pro- and proven that, you know, when you finish work, that is not the end of yeah. your use yep. to society. Yep. So that's important. And I hope that I have given women an idea of how confusing it is yeah. for men yes. when we change our mind all the time mm-hmm. and we give off all the wrong signals. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's a vulgar term, but, you know, cock, the cock tease is a thing in society and there's plenty of women who push and pull men and and manipulate them and I just just feel that women need to understand that there's as much confusion about men as vice versa. So they're not going to say it. Men about women and also in marriages. I mean I've studied this protagonist's marriage and his wife is not an affectionate woman which that's not a problem in itself. Her affection for him lies in the way she irons the crease mm. down his trousers yeah, and so after children. Yeah. But what he's desperate for is this sort of reckless being in love and for yeah. someone to be, you know, wanting him. Wanting him. And he, she will not want him. She will not give him that affection and sort of lustful relationship yeah. he wants. And so I'm hoping I've explained to women maybe 
we all have to maybe do it a bit more. And, mm. and you know, I had a conversation with um, the sexologist and her name's gone out of my... Bettina, Bettina Arndt, Arndt, yes. ...who said to me, if I can give you one piece of advice because I was talking about menopause, I'm 54, and she said, for God's sake, just do it because your marriage will be so much better yep. if you do. I totally agree. And there's all those roadblocks women put yep. in the way and I understand why because mm. you're yep. tired and you're hot mm. and you... But just do it and all of a sudden you've rekindled that yep. intimacy between mm. and what okay so maybe it took you four minutes or 24 but yeah either my, way you're going to feel better about it he's going to feel better and about you're going to feel your more connected going to feel yeah. great but i think also we miss the point that we always do things in life that we actually don't really feel like doing but we're glad we've done it when we've done it yeah so yeah. you know example i give women in this situation is you don't really feel like washing the dishes probably after you dinner. You still do it. But you feel great when you've done it and <laughs> you wake up in the morning and it's done. And I think – and actually doing it is never as bad when you start. You probably enjoy it even, you know. And I think that sex is the same. It's so easy to put it off and say, oh, I'm too tired and I'm too this and I'm too that. And women do – I find that in my, in my circle of girlfriends, there's a real narrative that says I only do it as a reward. Yes. Mm. So, And I say to my husband a lot, especially at breakfast because he's – you know, a bit of a late sleeper and he takes a while to get going. I yep. say, hey, honey, foreplay starts at breakfast. Yes. Because if you're kind of grumpy with me all day, I don't really want to do it no. with you at, at night. But if, you're, if you do something nice, you know, if, you, yep. if you're... if you Just friendly. Yeah, if we're having a nice morning together, foreplay starts at breakfast. Yeah. And he just gives me a look of disdain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he's pl- you're planting the seed. I've just got one final thing to say because I am so curious about the male sexual experience and insight and I have two distinct comments in my head because I ask guys and I say what does it feel like to be a man to have that penile function I don't know such an outward symbol of of, and um, what has been said to me is that particularly men who have prostate cancer you go along and have surgery when you feel absolutely fine and then you wake up and you've lost the throb in your pants. And they, he, this one particular, I described it as a pressure, a sensation it's that they feel all day long, rising and falling, rising and falling, whether it be a, a pretty girl walking past or a scene or something or just a memory or a song, they will get a partial erection. And this rise and fall feels like them. They've got their package in their pocket in their pants where they actually feel... So ownership of the libido is in their yeah, pants all day. in their day. pants mm. all day, ever ready, like a battery. Whereas female, <laughs> females... You have to turn it on, turn the turn tap on. on. And it's like a slow warm-up and then we respond, you know, with that emotional and that desire. But this is where I think as women we don't actually get what it would feel like to be a man because we're not a man. And, and then this other man just said to me once, Joe, what use am I as a man with a broken weapon because mm. he had a penis mm. that wasn't working? And that just almost stabbed so me sad, yeah. because I'm like, oh, my God. And he was a beautiful... Mother, uh, father with a happy marriage life. And I see, and Melissa and I have had to actually do a podcast recently to try and normalise what men might think of themselves around this. Because oh, yeah. So sad. Because it's it's devastating. It's really interesting, Joe. because the other, the other thing I was thinking in this book is because I'm talking, you know, it's not a sexual book mm. in any sense. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, don't don't think of it as that. But that's that sort of... Um, funny kind of way that marriages go where post kids and post menopause and and male identity crises and stuff the the sexual function the marriage becomes kind of second rate and you know this book says 
this particular man is still desperate for love yeah. and he wants to show love by mm-hmm. being affectionate yeah. with his wife and she won't let him. Yeah. And so that sort of that that core, you know, component of a yeah. marriage which is intimacy yeah. becomes um, s- sort of less important and I yeah. think if anything it, this book will remind people that intimacy of any kind, mm. even if it's just a cuddle or a kiss yeah. in the it's morning, important. is so important to I the think, health of the relationship. I think what... You often find, and just my favourite book ever is The Five Love Languages um, by Gary Chapman. And I think that in that he talks about the different, how we feel loved. And I think often men are the type of love language, and not always, but they're often um, quite physical touch. And a woman is often um, words of affirmation or... Time spent ta- together. Uh, Appreciation. Or um, quality time yeah. or, you know, and so I think what happens in flowers. that is very flowers. difficult... <laughs> very difficult for a woman to understand that actual physical affection is not just about and for, sorry for being crass but getting their rocks off mm-hmm. but it's actually about connecting with their partner and they don't do that with anyone else and I think as us as women if we realize how important that connection is for men we could make a real difference to their lives and our relationships mm. so this is all about relationships mm. Mm. and it's connection and human touch mm. Rosie, thank you so much. My you have um, completely. Rosie, where do we get your book? Oh, it's everywhere. Uh, you can get it. At <laughs> D- Sorry, it's everywhere. I'm everywhere. Um, it's uh, Dimex or your local bookseller, um, your independent bookstore. Can they download it if they're Kindle people yet or not? Uh, that's coming. That comes slightly after. We're only two weeks out, and you can oh. also, if you want to buy it online, you can um, order it through the publisher Night Parrot Press. Right. Night Parrot Press, and they will post it out for you. Great. Out to and the title comes from? Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth. Oh, why you live, tell the truth and shame the devil. We've been telling kids that a lot. You know, you won't get into trouble if you tell the truth. So Arthur Lambkin tries to tell the truth about his life. And then he gets into trouble. Well, you have to read. Okay. Thanks, Rosie. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Bye. I'm going to tell you about a boy who lives inside me been there all of my life. Hi, this is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions and so much feedback. And Melissa and I are absolutely thrilled about this. What we'd really love you to do though is to share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download using your favourite podcast app or subscribe to the penisproject.org. You'll get a weekly email and new releases, and this helps our podcast to get more people. And if you write a review and subscribe as well, well, we'll get known more widely across the globe. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Just a mystery to me I've got a boy of my own now It fills me with pride See him growing so fast into a man